Uh, well, let's pray, and we'll dive into Matthew chapter 24 this morning. Jesus, thank you for being with us. Thanks for giving us a chance to gather uh, in a building under your name. Lord, what, what a freedom that is to be able to do this. And I pray, Lord, that we do not take it for granted, and that as, um, as a body that, that meets in this form, uh, that we would take full advantage. Lord, that our worship would be sweet, that our, our teaching would be pure, that, um, that, Lord, our fellowship would be something that produces deep friendship and relationship and accountability, that we bear one another's burdens and forgive each other as we sin against each other. Lord, would you, um, would you bless this church body and use it for your glory. Uh, be with us as we're in your scriptures today and uh, teach us, illuminate your word for our minds, Lord. In your name, amen. All right. Well, we've been going through the book of Matthew. We are in our 69th week in the book of Matthew, and we've still got about three months left to go. So this, is a, uh, this has been a long journey of going through the book of Matthew, but it's been an incredibly important one for us. Uh, the book of Matthew, if you haven't been tracking with our entire series, is key because Matthew is writing his gospel specifically to a Jewish audience, and his main objective is to connect Jesus to the Old Testament story for any Jewish people that might be trying to understand, is Jesus the Messiah? So all throughout the book of Matthew, you see Matthew showing us this was to fulfill this prophecy. Here Jesus did this as to fulfill Zechariah or Malachi or Isaiah or all of the different prophets that are out there. He keeps bringing the story back together so that everybody that grew up in a Jewish context would say to themselves, we were looking for the Messiah, but now we have found him in the person of Jesus. That is Matthew's objective. That's his goal. That's what he's trying to accomplish. Over the course of that, you have Jesus being brought in and Jesus is teaching a gospel of the kingdom. He's teaching a message that says that he is bringing the kingdom of God to earth to rule and to reign over all his creation. So Jesus brings this message of the kingdom that is both for now, but it's also for the future. And language that's come out of that is that Jesus came and inaugurated his kingdom or began the, the kingdom of God on earth, and he will consummate it at what we know is his second coming or his return. So Jesus promises, actually even in the passage that we're going to be talking about today, that he is going to come back uh, to fulfill even this final prophecy about his kingdom coming in full. And we're going to talk about that quite a bit today. So as we've gone through this, Jesus has been teaching in increasing clarity that the things that are going to happen in the immediate future are going to indicate that he is, in fact, the Messiah. After he is crucified, which he prophesies his own crucifixion at the hands of the Romans and the Pharisees, they're going to collude and crucify him. So Jesus prophesied about that. He prophesied that he was going to be raised from the dead, that there would be a resurrection. He prophesies about that as well. Then he prophesies that the temple would be destroyed. This is a huge statement that Jesus is making, that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. Jesus says this is going to happen. Now, Jews have been taught that if somebody says a prophecy like this is going to happen and then it doesn't happen, then you should then disregard them as a false prophet. So Jesus was putting all of his teaching and all of his miracles on the line that if he's not crucified or if he's not raised from the dead, then we should disregard his message. That if Jerusalem and the temple are not destroyed, that we should disregard his message. But the flip side of that is also true. If those things happen, 
They should serve to confirm the message that he has preached, the miracles that he has done, the fulfillment of prophecies that have happened up to that point. All of that should come together in our minds and give us an immense confidence and hope in Jesus as the Messiah that we can build our entire lives on the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't have to do anything else. Sometimes we sit there and kind of wait for a personal miracle in our lives to kind of prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Like, all right, Jesus, if you do this thing for me, I'll give you my life. The, the problem with that is that Jesus has presented himself as Messiah. He has put everything that needed to be done on full display for you to put your faith in him. So to continue to ask for more is to look back on everything that's been done already and say, yeah, that wasn't enough for me. I need more. And so part of this is us actually shaping our hearts around the reality that Jesus and what he's done and what he's accomplished is enough. Now, I believe that Jesus continues to do incredible things today. Just by a show of hands, how many of you guys have had what you believe to be a miracle happen in your life? Just by, by sheer show of hands. This is, this, is, this is people that have Jesus actively at work in their lives today that have experienced God intervening in unique and powerful ways. So it's not that Jesus is done working and now he's hands off of the world and the rest of it is just up to fate, but it is that what he did all those years ago is enough that we can build our entire lives on this good news of the gospel. Does that make sense? So what we're going to get into this morning... Jesus taught two weeks ago. I'm gonna, I, I may say last week, if I say last week and you're like, that wasn't the Christmas Eve message, it's because my brain just skips over Christmas Eve and goes back into Matthew chapter 24 earlier. So two weeks ago, we preached what Jesus gave as uh, what's going to happen in the very near future. The disciples came to him and they asked him a question. They, well, they actually asked him three questions. Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. Jesus is sitting on the, uh, on the Mount of Olives the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? They want to know three things. When are these things going to happen? What's going to be the sign of your second coming and what's going to be the sign of the end of the age? This is a private conversation. Jesus and his 12. The 12 disciples that he's been training, he sits down and he has a chat with them. Keep that in your heads as we go through this chapter because it's going to, it's going to be an important context for the things that he says. So Jesus starts to answer them, but he doesn't go straight into it and say, all right, here's when it's going to happen. Here's going to be the sign of the uh, second coming, and here's going to be the sign of the end of the age. He actually starts by saying, let me tell you what's not going to be the sign of the second coming. Some major things are going to happen, and they are not the sign of the second coming. Things, are, so things like persecution. You're going to be persecuted immensely. There are going to be major world events, earthquakes and, and crazy things that are going to happen. And this event known as the abomination of desolation is going to take place. All of that is going to happen. People are going to start coming in and saying, hey, we found the Messiah out in the desert. Or, hey, I found the Messiah in this inner room. Don't go after them. None of that is me. That is not the second coming of the Messiah. So what Jesus is making very clear to his disciples, and remember, just the 12, a bunch of things are going to happen. That's not my second coming. That's not when it's going to take place. Now he goes into talking about what is going to be the sign of the second coming, and that's our text today. So if you have your uh, Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 29. It'll be up on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible in your hands. 
says this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is Jesus talking. We stopped mid, uh, mid-message essentially last time. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. Well, happy new year. This is a good one. It's a good passage to dive into. Um, I say that semi-jokingly. This is actually a very useful passage to start off a new year with because it, it's going to teach us how to find hope and how to live our lives while we wait for the coming of the Son of Man. So let's dive in and go through the text and we're going to try and understand everything that Jesus is teaching here. He starts in verse 29. He says, immediately after the tribulation. Now, He's just gotten done talking about uh, earthquakes, persecution, the destruction of the temple, and the the abomination of desolation. Those events, Jesus has just described all of them. And then he says this, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now this phrase has created some uh, disagreement within Christianity as to how to interpret the things that Jesus is saying. Now, you can land on one side of this or another, and to be honest, there's a lot of believers that do land on one side or the other, uh, trying to understand exactly what Jesus was saying. Uh, The two main things are are this. What does immediately mean? Some people believe that it's literal, that the very next thing after the abomination of desolation is a period of tribulation. Now, some people will believe that and then say that the abomination of desolation has not happened yet, and when it does, then we're going to have tribulation and then the coming of the Son of Man. And so they take that as a very literal thing. 
Some people take it literally and say that the abomination of desolation happened, the tribulation already happened, Jesus already returned, and now he's ruling and reigning. There are different views on that immediately. There's another view that says that immediately is indicating sequence but not timing. In other words, the next major event related to the second coming of the Christ is, and then Jesus teaches. And so the immediately means more and then, or next, or after that. I tend towards that view. To be honest, the primary reason that I tend towards that view is just a few verses later, Jesus says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So I don't believe that Jesus is teaching timing as he talks about the immediately after. I think he's talking about sequence. I think he's giving us an idea of how to prepare for what's going to happen next after the abomination of desolation. That's the primary reason that I fall on that, but a lot of people could land on different places, and that's okay. It's an area that we can freely disagree, but still collect under the name of Jesus and join. Uh, there are things that we can't disagree on and still call ourselves Christians. This is not one of them. This is one that Christians around the world can disagree on and still find themselves under the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Again, you could look at this and take it literally and be waiting for a moment when the sun goes black, when the stars fall from the heaven, when the moon goes dark, when there's massive, you know, kind of huge global effects that happen and then there's going to be the Son of Man. Some people do take it that way. Other people look at this maybe from more of a political space and just say there's going to be like major transition in world power. There's going to be a lot of things that happen. I don't think Jesus in this moment is trying to give us uh, a, a, an indication of exactly when the coming of the Son of Man is going to happen. Uh, I think what he's really getting at is that it's going to be very, very obvious. So how many of you guys saw the eclipse? Anybody in here see the eclipse back a couple of months ago? Was anybody in a cool place to see the eclipse, not Southern California? Anybody go somewhere cool? All right, so we had some Oregonians. Where'd you go? Oregon. Oregon. All right, so it was cool in Oregon, right? Yeah, it wasn't that cool here. Uh, where'd you go, Don? You went to Tennessee? Yeah, Tennessee. Tennessee, was it cool in Tennessee? Yeah. It was cool in Tennessee? All right, it wasn't cool here. No, it's pretty lame. <laughs> but uh, for those that were in Oregon or Tennessee, the, the moon went over the sun. Is that, am I, am I right there? Yeah? Okay. The moon went over the sun and blocked out the sun's light, and it created a very strange effect. Like, it kind of washed out the color. It changed the lighting in these cool places, not here in Southern California. It changed all about what you could see, and it, it had a really strange effect to it. It was very, very obvious that something was going on. If you somehow missed the news that an eclipse was coming, which is fairly impossible, but if you somehow missed the news that an eclipse was coming, and then that happened, you would immediately look up and try and figure out what was going on, and then your retinas would be seared and you'd be toast. But it would be very, very obvious. I believe that Jesus is indicating, very similarly to what he did back in verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. There is going to be major turmoil, and it's going to precede the coming of the Son of Man. And then Jesus says this, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus here is answering a major question 
that the disciples would be wrestling with. Jesus, you're saying that the temple is about to be destroyed. Everything about the Jewish rhythm is built off of the temple. They may live in other parts of the world. They may scatter abroad to different places, but they would come back to the temple for key moments of worship, primarily for Passover. They would come back into Jerusalem to celebrate at the temple. It was a huge deal. And so for these disciples who were Jewish that are hearing that the temple is about to be destroyed, there's a major identity crisis. How are the people of God ever going to be in the same place for when you return? Jesus, if you come back and we're scattered all over the world, what's going what's to be the story? In fact, Jesus is even going to go so far in a couple of chapters as to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Get out of here. You don't need to be here. Jerusalem is not where you need to stay. You need to go and get yourself out into the nations, making disciples, being global. Go from here. Get out of here. And what Jesus is doing is he's answering a major question of how will God's people gather and he says the angels are going to come, a loud trumpet is going to blast, and all of the saints from every corner of the earth are going to be gathered together. He's basically saying to them, you don't need to worry about whether all of God's people will be in the same place at the same time or not. We'll take care of that. We can gather them all from every corner of the earth. So when Jesus, a little bit later, says, go and make disciples of all nations, the disciples don't have to feel tethered to the temple. They don't have to feel tethered to Jerusalem like, well, I can only go far as far as I can get back to the temple. That's no longer the issue. Jesus has told them the temple is going to be destroyed. Hosea and Ezekiel have told them that God's presence has left the temple. When Jesus is crucified, the curtain is going to tear from top to bottom, indicating that the presence of God no longer resides in the physical temple. These are important messages to tell the disciples that it's okay to go and make disciples of all nations. You don't need to stay locked to this place. So Jesus is answering a key question there. Then he gives us another lesson from the fig trees, using fig trees often, and it's helpful. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Jesus is saying, look, there are going to be things that help you see when the Son of Man is coming. And it's just like a fig tree indicating the summer. We all know that reference, right? Yeah. So in Israel, the fig tree was the first to sprout to show summer. We our comparison might be Punxsutawney Phil and Groundhog Day, right? That thing pops up, Groundhog Day, X number of more winter. When the fig tree blooms, it was an indication that summer is coming. So every Jew in Israel knew that when the fig tree shows its branch, summer's on the way. And Jesus is saying it's the same thing. When you see these things, you know that the coming of the Son of Man is about to happen. Now, another big question that people have is verse 34. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Was he talking about his second coming? Was he talking about the abomination of desolation and the events beforehand? To be honest, and I'm just going to share with you my opinion as a semi-studied pastor, uh, I do not devote my entire life to the academic study of eschatology or the end times. But I have studied these things, and I do look at this, and I think that Jesus is referencing the earlier events that precede the word immediately. And that he's saying to his disciples, remember, just keep in mind, this is a group of 12 people that Jesus is talking to. 
He's sitting down on a rock on the Mount of Olives. This is not to the crowds. This is not to the Pharisees. This is not to the, the many people. This is Jesus talking to his disciples saying, look, before you guys are gone, those things are going to happen. Prepare yourselves. Jesus is not teaching a massive warning to his disciples. He's not trying to induce fear. He's trying to, and we'll spend the rest of our time talking about this, he's trying to teach them how to be as they wait for him to return. And so what he's saying is, look, there's going to be very difficult things that take place. There are going to be persecutions, hard times. The temple is going to be destroyed. The abomination of desolation is going to happen. And these things are going to happen before you guys pass away, before this generation is gone. Within 40 years was a Jewish generation. Jesus uh, exited the earth somewhere around A.D. 33. The destruction of the temple happens in A.D. 70. Within a generation, what Jesus promised would happen takes place. So he continues on and he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, I just want to take a brief moment and talk about uh, our Christology, what we believe about Jesus. We preach a fully God and fully man Jesus. Now, I say that we, and I, I don't mean that, you know, like we Anthem Church. Uh, Orthodox Christianity preaches a fully God, fully man Jesus. So I mentioned that your end times could have variety. Your Christology cannot have a lot of variety. So this is used to determine whether something is pure Christianity or if it is a cult of Christianity. So Mormons, for example, do not believe in a fully God, fully man Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in a fully God, fully man Jesus. That is why they are outside of Orthodox Christianity and not considered to be Christians. Followers of Jesus that would proclaim that he is both fully God and fully man would fall into Orthodox Christianity, or what we would call Christians, uh, that we wouldn't point to and say that that's heretical. That can leave a question. What do we do then with Jesus saying, yeah, I don't know when this is all going to happen. The angels don't know when this is all going to happen. Only the Father knows when this is all going to happen. And for that, we go to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Jesus is being talked about by Paul to this Philippian church, and he writes about it, and he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Our understanding of Jesus is that he is fully God and fully man, and that as he entered into humanity, he did not uh, take his deity off and all of a sudden be fully man for 33 years. That is not our belief system. Our belief system is that he maintained his deity, that he is fully God, but that there were limitations to becoming a human being. One example of this is omnipresence, that God is everywhere all the time, is a true statement about God. But when Jesus entered human form, he limited his omnipresence to a specific location as a human being. So even though he's fully God, he then took on a, a limitation to his deity as being in one place at any given moment. Another one would be his omniscience or his all-knowing ability. Jesus frequently talks about how he preaches what he receives from the Father. John chapter 12 says this, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Jesus is indicating that he's not saying everything from an omniscient perspective, that he has all knowledge, but that he is living his life in obedience to the Father, receiving 
word from the Father through the Holy Spirit and giving that to us. This is a huge deal. It's something that is incredibly powerful for us to see that Jesus is living a life that he is inviting us to live by the Holy Spirit, being led by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit. Jesus himself lived his life led by and filled by the Spirit. This is a, a, a great conversation and a powerful theological reality, but I just wanted to bring up that when Jesus says, I don't know when this is all going to happen, it does not indicate that he's not God and that he's only a man. It indicates that he is only sharing with us what he's received from the Father. And the Father has not revealed to him the when. So what does that say to you? It should say to you that the when does not matter to us. Jesus is about to go into, instead of when, specifically all this is going to happen, he's going to go into how you should live while you wait for the coming of the Son of Man. That is more important to Jesus and to the Father than the exact date and time of the coming of the Son of Man. So when you start to see billboards that advertise dates of the end of the world, or when you start to hear rumors or Facebook posts or whatever that, that talk about why the Mayan calendar is going to show us when the end of the world is, or whatever goes on out there, you can sit there and say, <laughs> no, because that's not how it's going to work. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's how our attitude should be, is that really, I don't need to know that information. The Father determines what I need to know, and he said, I have a way for you to live that does not include you knowing the specific time, hour, and day of my second coming. So for us as believers, that actually, that shouldn't raise fear or terror. That should raise an incredible amount of confidence and hope that we have everything that we need we don't need to be studying the stars. We don't need to be figuring out the, uh, the, the, the numerology of the Old Testament to try and land on a date of the second coming of the Christ. We don't need any of that. It's not at all anywhere on the spectrum of what the Father has for us right now. So here's what he wants us to focus on. This is from the Father through Jesus to the 12 and to us to talk about how we should be living our lives. So here's what he says. He says, therefore, verse 42, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. So Jesus is actually comparing himself to a thief in this moment, which I just think is kind of funny. Um, anyways, Jesus says, if you knew that somebody was coming to your house to break in, you wouldn't go to bed. You wouldn't just fall asleep on, uh, on the watch and allow somebody to break into your house. You would stay up all night in anticipation of that person coming. And what Jesus is doing is he's trying to get his 12 to live their lives in a certain way that is alert and ready. You know that the sun is coming back. You know that I'm going to return. So how you live should be dictated by your anticipation and your waiting and your readiness for the coming of the Son of Man, no matter what the delay is, no matter how long that happens. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to talk about a faithful and wise servant versus a wicked servant, and he's going to try and give you as much detail as you need how you should live in the anticipation and waiting of the second coming of the Messiah versus how you should not live. And that's what he's going to get into here. This is verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. 
Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So Jesus starts by talking about the wise and faithful servant. And this is a person that when the master goes away, continues on in his duties of feeding the household, serving the household. Now there's a lot that you can read into parables and there's a lot that you can learn from a parable. We're not supposed to really read into them and try and figure out every theological nuance. We're supposed to read them and get what Jesus is saying. And what Jesus is saying is that a faithful and wise servant will continue on in the things that they've been instructed to do even while the master is not physically present. And when he comes back and he sees that they've been faithful, he is going to entrust that faithful and wise servant with everything that he has. That's the message that Jesus is giving. The faithful and wise servant manages well the household that's been entrusted to him. So what's the issue at hand here? Jesus here is talking about the character of the people of the kingdom of God. He's talking about the people that, that say yes to following him are not going to slip into wickedness or laziness or any other kind of thing. They are going to be the people that hear what they've been instructed to do, understand what the master desires of them, and they are going to continue to serve faithfully and diligently regardless of how long the master is gone. That is irrelevant to them. And I love that he chose a servant that's responsible for feeding. The cool thing about this, meals happen on a regular basis. Three times a day we eat meals, and the servant is there preparing the table, feeding the household, cleaning the table. The next meal, preparing the table, feeding the household, cleaning the table. The, the servant is diligent and faithful to do all that they have been instructed. Now that character applies in a lot of different ways because the scriptures teach us a lot of different things. It teaches us about our morality, how we interact with the, the sinfulness that exists in the world, what we do with our minds, what we do with our bodies, what we do with our relationships, with our money, with our time. That is impacted by this story that Jesus is saying. Your character shows in your morality, your willingness to choose the things that Jesus has said, this is how you should live, a person of character in the kingdom says, yes, I hear you, and I'm going to live that way. It also impacts our uh, life in the body of Christ. So much of the scripture is devoted to how we relate to each other. Are we willing to serve one another, to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us, to welcome one another? These are the things that have been instructed of us about life in the body. So a healthy and faithful body life is a part of the faithful and wise servant. It also impacts how we treat the lost, the world that does not know Jesus, those that are far from God. That we are diligent to be on mission, communicating the gospel, sharing the heart of God with people, being ready to defend all that is true about the gospel, being out there speaking to the broken and lost of this world. There's also an issue of justice in how we respond to the commands of our king. That we are to treat the poor and the broken and the needy and those that are facing injustice in this world with the heart and the compassion and the mercy of God himself. These are the activities, actions, lifestyles, choices of the faithful and wise servant. And I just want to bring something to you. Jesus, remember, is sitting on the Mount of Olives with his 12 guys. This isn't Jesus preaching to the thousands. This isn't Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. This is Jesus talking to his 12 disciples saying, guys, this is what faithfulness and wisdom looks like in the kingdom. You're going to take the things that I'm saying 
And you're going to live those things out faithfully and continually until the master returns. And that's, that's the call. That's the life is diligence and faithfulness and wisdom in the midst of uh, however long the master is gone. In that same context, Jesus then goes on to teach about the wicked servant. And he says, this is the other choice. You could take the things that I'm saying and you could disregard them. He says, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus has used this phrase multiple times to indicate judgment. And there is absolutely judgment in the scriptures. If you've ever thought that the, the scriptures somehow don't judge, that is not the case. They do. But it's not done with pleasure. It's not done with joy. It's not the hope of God in any way, shape, or form that people would fall under judgment. But it is frequently brought up as this is the consequence of a choice of somebody that chooses to reject the loving grace and kindness of God. They are in a sense, choosing their own destruction. They're choosing to fall into the, the, the judgment that God has said. This is waiting for the wicked servant. This is what happens when a servant says, whatever my master just said, I don't care. I want to do my own thing. I want to live my own life. I'm going to find my own friends. I'm going to, I'm going to drink with them. I'm going to party with them. I'm going to do whatever. I mean, those are just the examples that Jesus gives in that particular parable. But essentially, it would be the person that has chosen to walk away from the instruction and the care and the grace that Jesus has communicated through his gospel. He's like, guys, there's a faithful servant and there's a wicked servant. When you hear about my second coming, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the cross, I'm going to be raised up from the grave, and they're going to watch him ascend into heaven. These same guys that he's teaching are going to watch Jesus ascend into heaven, and then a couple angels are going to stand there and say, why are you guys looking up in the sky? Don't you know that he's gone? He told you to do something? He's going to come back? That's all going to ha- Everything he said is going to happen is going to happen. So get to it. These guys hear all of what Jesus is saying, and they have a responsibility as to how they choose to respond. By the way, if you've ever, um, I don't know if you've done this, this, I just would encourage everybody at some point, after you read through a gospel, either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, any one of them, Read through the book of Acts. This is to give you a picture. If, if uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the stone that go into the pond that's totally still, right? The gospel is the stone that goes in. Uh, Acts is all of the ripples. It's all the implications of that rock going into the water. Acts is the guys living out everything that Jesus has said. And what we see from that is we see faithful and wise servants, men and women that have heard the gospel and are responding to it. They're going, they're preaching the gospel, they're planting churches, they're evangelizing to new people groups, they're crossing cultural boundaries, they're making clothes for for widows, they're serving the poor, they're doing the life that Jesus has invited them into, most of them. And there are some that, as Paul describes at the end of the book of Colossians, that shipwreck their faith, that hear the words of Jesus and choose not to obey. They are the wicked servants. Paul names two of them specifically. They were walking with us and they've chosen to shipwreck their faith. So the call on us, and this is why this is an important and powerful necessary message 
for the last Sunday of 2017 is we have to choose. We have, you have full freedom to choose to be wise and faithful with the message of the gospel or to be wicked with the message of the gospel. And there's not one person in this room that's without excuse because this may be your first time hearing the message of the gospel, but you're hearing it. And you have accountability as to what you do with that. You've been entrusted with the message. You've been entrusted with the word of God. And now you have to decide to what extent does that impact how you live your life. And Jesus is saying to his, to his team, his disciples, his guys, I want you to be these faithful and wise servants until I return. So rather than getting caught up in when Jesus comes back, which is a temptation. It's very easy for us to get caught up in the waves of, uh, of hype and hoopla that come with any time somebody comes out and says, I have insight that I think uh, uh, is going to indicate when the end of the world is going to happen. We don't, we don't need to really respond to that. This is the amazing thing about this. So Jesus prophesied his own death by crucifixion, his own resurrection, and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So we have three major events that Jesus prophesied about that were fulfilled within 40 years of, his, of that moment, within generation of that moment. And so what that means is that we can look back on Jesus with total confidence that he is a true prophet, not a false prophet. So when he says, I am going to return, we can build our lives on that. We can take that to the bank. We don't, follow Jesus because we think he has the greatest teaching set of all the major world religions. We don't even follow Jesus because we think that the Bible is, you know, a little bit more reliable than the Quran or a little bit more reliable than Buddha's writings or whatever. That, those are not why we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus because he is a prophet that has been revealed as true, full Messiah through every measurable standard that was set out to identify the Messiah. So you can build your life on it. And you can walk through this life with total confidence. So when James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, it's not crazy. It's not crazy for him to say that because you can know that the world around me and its craziness does not impact whether God is in control or not because... Jesus has revealed something different than that. 2017 was a pretty crazy year, right? It was nuts. Absolutely insane. So many things just going all over the place culturally. Uh, it just was, it was a wild, wild year. As followers of Jesus, we do not need to be afraid of wild years. We don't need to be scared of cultural events that swing us high and low and get us super excited and get us super bummed out. We don't need to be afraid of those things because we are building our lives on a foundation of a God who is sovereign and faithful and true and in control and has proven himself to be the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Jesus Messiah. That's our foundation. So you can walk through the fire with confidence, with passion, with joy, because that's our God and King. So that is why this is a message of hope. There's no fear in eschatology. Now, eschatology is the study of the end times. There's no fear in Revelation. You don't read through Revelation and, and start freaking out about what's going to happen or when it's going to happen or why it's going to happen. You don't. It's a message of hope. 
It was written to the Christians of that day to say, you can know that Jesus is coming on a white horse. You can know that. You can live your lives with the return of Jesus as the cornerstone of your hope. That's why Revelation was written. That's why Matthew 24 exists. It's Jesus saying, you can, you can bank on this. You can walk in faithfulness because you know I'm coming again. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this. Thank you for this message. And I, I just pray that even, even today as we walk out of here reflecting on the year that was and the year ahead, that there would be such a profound confidence in your, in your future. Lord, we can live our lives fixing our eyes on you, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith because we know that you are worthy that you are a foundation that will not be shaken, that you are a cornerstone that we can build the structure of our lives on. You are our rock and our refuge. Jesus, I just pray for us here today. <laughs> I pray that you would give us the boldness to build our lives on you. Teach us what that looks like. Show us all the, the nuances of being people of the kingdom. Lord, I pray that our, as a church that we would preach into that day in and day out, that there would be frequent returns to our understanding of who you are. But, but Lord, even today, would you just be setting this foundation that Jesus Christ, you are king, creator, and in control. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you in your name. Amen.